Hello, I'm Michael Wimmer, and welcome to the Pros and Prose Podcast, a podcast devoted to the exploration of great sports writing. This February, in honor of Black History Month, Pros and Prose will be focusing on stories about the struggle for Black equality, along with books by Black sports writers. As we reach the end of February, I am excited to present our latest episode, featuring Wyoming Tyus, a true track and field legend. In 1968, she became the first athlete, male or female, to win back-to-back gold medals in the 100-meter dash. Now she is sharing her story with the world, having recently written her autobiography, Tiger Bell. In it, she recounts her Olympic triumphs, along with her struggles growing up in the Jim Crow South, the importance of her coach Ed Temple in her life, and her fight for women's equality after her track and field days were over. It was truly an honor and a pleasure to speak to Wyoming, and I'm happy to be able to share our conversation with you. Without further ado... Here's Wyoming Tyus. Today I have with me Wyoming Tyus, a gold medal winning sprinter and the author of her recent autobiography, Tiger Bell. Wyoming, it's great to have you with me today. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, What inspired you to want to write your story 50 years after your triumphs at the Olympics? Well, I wanted to, my coach uh, at Temple, uh, you know, I wanted, I just felt he has never really gotten a credit, which he he do, he was due. And um, when he passed, I was thinking about it. And then once he, once he, after his uh, death, I thought, well, this is a great way to uh, pay tribute to him. And also not only just him, but to all the Tiger Bells that he has educated and also put on Olympic teams and international teams. Mm-hmm. So that that's what made me want to do it. I just thought, and also uh, doing after his death, I just felt that he really didn't get that much press, and no one really talked about him. I, I, I mean, there was a couple of people, but not enough as far as I was concerned. And uh, I know in Nashville, he got a lot of uh, recognition, but uh, around the world and and everything else, it just didn't happen. And I just thought that uh, you know he should be recognized, and people should know that what he has done and also just also my struggles and also the fact that being a young girl young black woman growing up in the Jim Crow South and to let people know that just because of that because you have obstacles that you don't have to let those get you down you have to always you know stay in the fight mm-hmm. how, how did growing up in uh, Griffin Georgia influence you uh, as a kid well, I always, well, I grew up with three older brothers, so that had a lot of influence for me <laughs> with, as far as act, being involved in sports and all that. Um, uh, we were, you know, it was, schools were not integrated, so throughout my whole education, uh, even through college, I never went to school with white kids at all. But where we grew up in Griffin, Georgia, grew up on a dairy farm, and the dairy farm, we didn't own it, uh, was owned by uh, Ben Brown. And uh, the farm was in a white community. So we grew up around white kids. Uh, we played ball with white kids. We couldn't play with the white girls. That means my brothers nor I, but we played with the boys in the, in the, in the neighborhood. We, you know, basketball, football, you name it, and we did all of that. So just by doing that, I learned being involved with them that I really had to uh, be a little bit better than what <laughs> <laughs> than everybody else that mm-hmm. I could. Uh, and, you know, it was uh, uh, my parents really made it 
a wonderful growing up. I say he always wanted us to go to school and get our education. They wanted us to do and go further than they did in high in school. And they just felt that our job was not to work, but our job, our work was to get an education. So, and they always made us feel very comfortable. And they also wanted us to always feel safe. They They wanted us to be safe and they, always let us know the things we should and should not do or what, what, you know, if we believe in something, we should fight for it. Mm-hmm. And you talk about um, growing up in the Jim Crow South and the obstacles you faced because of that. Uh, how did those sort of manifest itself for you in your childhood and early adulthood? Well, it's, yeah, I think it started really early in my life. I just think that um, I can just remember my relatives saying, oh, this She's gonna be a problem because she doesn't listen. <laughs> she has a she, and I can just remember when I was um, about six years old, and my brothers, my brother wanted a a cowboy outfit, and I did too. And my mom said, "Well, you can get a cowgirl outfit," and I was like, "No, I want a cowboy outfit." And we were having this discussion, and my dad told my mom, "Well, you know, she's not gonna wear it. You might as well get it." And so, like Christmas morning, when I woke up, I had my cowboy outfit. <laughs> And so I think I started, it was very early, I started going, feeling that, hey, you have to express yourself, you have to say things, there are ways of saying things, and that's what my parents always taught us, too, there are ways of saying things, and and ways of getting around things, and you you know, you have to make the decision on how you're going to do it, and I think I started like that, and and I just kept saying to my parent, my mom especially, no, I don't want the cowgirl's outfit, I'm not going to wear it, I'm not going to wear it. And I think she got the message. And growing up in, you know, in the Jim Crow South, it's like we, you know, we understood the fact that my parents always said to my brothers, I can remember them saying, when they would do some work for the people in the neighborhood, the white people in the neighborhood, they would say, look, you go, you knock on the door. And when you knock on the door, you step off the porch, you know, <laughs> and if it's the, if the, uh, the wife comes, uh, the woman of the house comes to the ha- door. Don't just stand up there and start staring that woman down. You know, that that's not necessary. You're going to do work and, you know, and that, that was one way of keeping us safe. Mm-hmm. The other, you know, and then also making us, but never telling us we were never good enough. That we were just, they always made us feel we just as good, if not better than anybody. And, but these are the things that keep you safe growing up in the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. That, you know, these are, you know, there are things that, you know, you may not want to do. And if you don't want to do that, you should never put yourself in that position. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so they, and just grew, and the people that I grew up with, the young, uh, Ben Brown's children and all of that, you know, we never had any fights. We never had any problems with them calling us names. Now, Ben Brown had uh, a lot of land, and he had houses on his land, which he rented to other people. And uh, there were sometimes families that moved in, white families we're talking about, and they were not too kind, didn't want to play with uh, us as black kids. And uh, they wanted to call us names. And my father always told us, you know, they can never call you names. They know your name. That's what they should call you. The same thing with you. There's no name calling. If you're going to, if they're going to play with you, they have to call you 
you know, by your name. But there were always kids that didn't want to do that. So those kids didn't get to play with us. So they didn't get to really play because uh, where we live, that's where the land where that's where we played the football, that's where we played basketball, everything. So they couldn't come play with us and call us names. I can remember getting in a fight. Well, my brother made me fight anyway. <laughs> uh, this kid calling us uh, the N-word. And uh, and we told him, you know, we can't play with us. You can't say that. You, you need to leave the area, and he wouldn't. So we, I mean, we drew a line like in the dirt or the sand and said to him, well, if you cross over this, this is our property. That's your property. You cross over this, and you call us a name. It's, you know, you, you don't have to pay for that. <laughs> so he did it anyway. And so my brother said to uh, him, you know what? I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to let my sister take care of that. And uh, so I had to fight him. It wasn't really a fight. I mean, I hit him so hard. <laughs> and uh, he just went down. I punched him in his stomach. And it was like, you know, that was it. And we never had any trouble with him. And the thing was, I think the mere fact that I was a girl, the black girl, and I beat this white kid up, you know, and nobody had, we never ever had trouble. But with other <laughs> kids that lived there, that was there that li didn't live on his property, but lived in the community. We never had trouble with those kids at all, those boys that all we played, you know, throughout. You know, we were just good friends. And I know my middle brother, even when he passed away, I can remember being at the service. And so many of the people that we grew up with came to his service. And, you know, it was just amazing. It's, you know, was, we just had a great time. I mean, but we also understood what was going on and what the growing up in the Jim Crow South and, you know, having to ride a school bus over an hour and we could have walked to school. But it was a white school, so we couldn't go to that. So we had to ride this school bus for an hour to go to our black school. So, But we understood those things, but that's how times were. And my father would always say, that uh, it's not always going to be like this. Things mm -hmm. are going to change. So, mm -hmm. and and you've talked about the wanting to pay honor to Ed Temple, your your track coach at Tennessee State. Um, mm -hmm. how, how did you first come to work with him? Well, um, growing up in the high in the middle school and high school, they they had um, basketball and track for girls and. So I played basketball. I was I thought I could play, <laughs> but I was not that great. I couldn't shoot, so you know I can't play. <laughs> but um, I was a good guard. But uh, and then I ran track afterwards. Uh, my father died when I was fourteen, and uh, I was, um, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was, you know, I I wanted to go to college, but I didn't. My mom was not going to be able to send me to college or anything like that but in my track career I was I was running uh Mr. Temple that's what I call him most people everybody call him coach but growing up in the south you know the, you always have to say Mr. or Miss so <laughs> Mr. Temple saw me uh running in a track meet and he thought I had some potential I guess <laughs> but I know he came up to me after I finished running a 50-yard dash or something like that and said to me introduced himself and told me that he had a, a summer program where he trained high school and junior high school girls for a month and then you could go to at that time it was the AAU championships it's no longer that anymore but uh, so and he asked if I would be interested in coming up for the month and I was like uh, yeah I guess so 
<laughs> and um, I went back home and he said, well, you're here for me. And I went back and I was told my mom about it. And then uh, within two weeks, I did hear from him. And he said he was coming to visit. Uh, what he did, he went to every girl that he invited up for the summer program, he would go to their homes and talk to their parent or parents, you know, and tell them what his rules were and what he expected of the young girls. And that's how it happened for me. He saw me and, you know, to this day, I always think, oh, how did he know it was me? How could, how could he see that I had the potential? I didn't even know I had, mm-hmm. but he, and he did. He, that first summer I went there. I was, I was used to going to practice maybe twice a week <laughs> and uh, I would go to Tennessee state that first summer and you had to practice every day except Sundays and you practice three times a day. We practice at five in the morning, at nine in the morning, and at 1.30 in the afternoon. And this is in Tennessee. At 1.30, you can imagine how hot it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we were on a college campus. So, I mean, I'm just, I didn't realize, I, didn't, I knew I was on a college campus, but I couldn't put together why he trained us so hard those three times a day. I, as I got older, I started realizing, that, well, that's what he had told the, our families that he was going to take care of us. And he did that way. I mean, we were so tired. All we could do was crawl out the track and go eat and go lay down <laughs> <laughs> and crawl out and then crawl back to the track and do the other workouts. But uh, so we were, you know, he kept us pretty busy and he did keep us safe. And that's what, he, you know, that's what he had promised our parents that he would do. Mm-hmm. So he saw me and my first summer, people were going home and I thought it was just too hard. And, and uh, I felt like all these young other girls that are here, I'm not, I was used to winning and I'm not winning. I'm getting beat. <laughs> and uh, he's changing my whole running style, which needed to be changed. But I was still, but even changing my running style, I was not winning. And, oh, it was just, it was just too much for me. And I called my mom and said to her, uh, I want to come home. And she told me, what do you mean you want to come home? She said, this is too hard. I can't do this and blah, blah, blah. And she says, well, let me just tell you this. You wanted to go. You must finish the summer out. You don't have to go back again. And I just could not believe she would not let me come home. And But but that was the best thing that had happened to me. It mm-hmm. made me stay, and I stuck with it, and uh, I never looked back. I, I couldn't wait till the next summer. <laughs> by the end of the, you know, by the end of the camp, I could not wait till the next summer. And also, just the mere fact of being there and being able to see other women that were in college there that had been not, not just been to the Olympics, but had traveled around the world. You know, they'd gone to Russia, Germany, Poland, you name it, and they they've gone there. And it was like, ah, they, they did that because they could run. And they and I, I mean, I just got totally interested in the fact that I could do that and. And to meet young women that, that were doing, the, you know, saying, I want to be a doctor, I'm, I'm going to be a math teacher. I mean, throughout my years in high school and elementary school, I only had male teachers as far as uh, math was concerned. I didn't know women would, would do all of that, teach math. <laughs> so I was totally like, wow, because people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And at first I was like, I don't know. I can't. And they kept saying, you have to think of something you want to be. And I started saying, okay, I want to be a teacher. I could be a nurse. 
And it was, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that's all I could, that's all I was exposed to. But when I went to Tennessee that summer, I got exposed to a lot more, a lot more things that women could do and, and black women were doing. And, and you know, and I was just totally surprised and and shocked. And I just, I just felt that that was such a growth period for me too. Mm-hmm. So it sort of upended your ideas of what, what a woman could be in the world. Absolutely. It surely most certainly did. Because I just, I mean, I mean, they were in college getting, I mean, going to college. I mean, when I was in school, when I was there, it was, when I, we, I was doing some research when I was writing my book. And in the U.S., in the U.S., it was only 8% of women, this is all women, not just black women, all women in the U.S. that were in college. And here it is, you know, this school, Tennessee State, had uh, all these women in college and, and on a, a work-age scholarship, not just the athletic scholarship. They weren't given those at the time. And here it is, they, and he has these women graduating from college and going on to be other things, doctors and math teachers and professors. And I was just in awe of the fact that that could happen. And, you know, and these things were available for black women. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that goes along with the fact of, you know, another way of honoring him. I just think, you know, not too many people know all of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, you call his program at um, Tennessee State Title IX before Title IX. Uh, mm-hmm. c- could you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Tennessee State was the only school giving any type of athletic scholarship, any type of scholarships to women. And uh, you think about, and, and we're talking about the whole U.S. of A. Nobody was doing that. Tuskegee started it. Tuskegee Institute mm-hmm. started it, and that program didn't continue. So Mr. Temple started his program, and he was able to convince the president at uh, Tennessee State to give him, I think it was $300, <laughs> to do all of this. And then he started giving him the work aid scholarships. And he, and, you know, when you think about the USA and only one school, and it's a black school, a historical black school, and we're talking a school at the time probably had maybe anywhere from a thousand to two thousand students. That that was the only school that was doing this for women. So uh, this is why I say that we were Title IX before there was a Title IX. Mm-hmm. They were doing uh, Tennessee State. Mr. Temple was doing this for black women. And uh, people say, it's just black women. Well, yeah, you have to beat the black women. or <laughs> You could have been white and been there, but you had to be just as good as we were. You know, <laughs> he was not, <laughs> you know, that's how that is. People, he wasn't trying to, I said, no black women tried to, no white women tried to be on the team. You know, mm-hmm. that did try to be on the team. You know, you can't just be on the team just because you're white or, you know, anything like that. Mr. Temple always felt that everybody had something to contribute. Everybody's not going to be a gold medal winner, but you have something to contribute to the uh, to the team. You know, it could be any. It could be that you're an A plus student. It could be that you know whatever you could contribute. He felt everyone could could contribute something. But uh, so I just felt that, and Mr. Temple always talked the fact that he was tight on nine because nobody was giving him anything. And now look, and women now no matter what event or sport you want to be in, they can get some type of uh, athletic scholarship to college, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. 
And you, uh, you write about your experiences too, running with the Buffon Bells and your experiences with uh, Flame and Mamie <laughs> as the coach is uh, contrary to Ed Temple's uh, way with you. What, what was it about her style that, that really rubbed you the wrong yeah, way? Yeah, I'm going to try. <laughs> but um, they, were, they were a team out of Texas, and they were a team that Sports Illustrated chose to put on the cover of their magazine in 1964, saying they were going to the Olympics and, and all those things and writing up uh, they could have a chance to be in the Olympics and win medals. And we, I mean, I just couldn't even believe that. Here it is. This is 1964. In 1960, Wilma Rudolph won, won three gold medals in the Olympic Games. And uh, nobody put her on the cover of Sports Illustrated. You know? <laughs> and, then, and they were talking about these girls that had never broke a tape. I mean, at the, every meet I've been at, been with them, they were never, I don't even know if they even made it to the finals of the race. They were that you know, they were they were people that uh, I, they they got the publicity because of the coach and also because uh, they were the bouffant bells. They wore makeup. They did this, but they couldn't break a tape. <laughs> was that emblematic to you of of the way women's track and women's sports were covered at the time? Yeah, well, they didn't cover women's sports. They just really, and they, they, and let me split it this way. They covered it every four years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when it was time to go to the Olympics, they covered women's sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, that didn't change to many years later. I mean, not even 68. And I, you know, it didn't start until I, in, this late, in the middle 70s. They started doing a lot more in covering women's uh, uh, sports. And, uh and you know, I'm really, and I'm not just talking about track, but any sport that women were involved in. And, and, and with Title Nine, that made a big difference. And you know, I was one of uh, the founding members of the Women's Sports Foundation. And uh, one of the reasons we even started that Women's Sports Foundation was, as a matter of fact, we were all at a um, what was that called? The Women's Superstars. I don't know if you, you are young and old enough to know anything about that. <laughs> but they used to have the men's superstars, and they then they finally had started having the women's superstars. And about eight of us was it was a lot more than eight, but it was eight of core people that would talk to was talking one night uh, at at the superstars and talking about what they had gone through as young girls and all of that. And also when they go out to speak, there are women that are always coming up to saying to them, gosh, I wish somebody had encouraged me. I wish I had someone to look up to or something. And we start talking about that. And in doing so, we start writing down things that maybe we should do and things we should do. And, and that's pretty much how it started. And it was about, you know, you know, Everybody identifies it with Billie Jean King, and sure, it was her. She started. She was one of the starting members, but it was about eight of us that really was this core group that started the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And what, what were your goals for the for the Women's Sports Foundation? Uh, to bring publicity to young girls, and also to encourage people to look at when young girls and women that are participating in sports and encourage them in that because just as you would encourage your young men and uh and like 
people always like, encourage their sons and tell them, get out there and do all that. And that wasn't happening for young girls. And also making uh, women and young girls feel proud of who they are and that, you know, what you're doing is a good thing. If it makes you feel good, it's a good thing. And that, uh, that uh, your talents is just as good, if not better, as a lot of the men. And I think in this day and time, we can see that. I mean, if you look at the um, uh, USA uh, soccer team, both men and women, the women's team is really kicking butt. <laughs> and the men's <laughs> <laughs> and you are, you know, and the men's team is not, but still the men's team get paid more, so mm-hmm. it's still not equal. And, but you're always going to have to fight, it's gonna, you know, a fight for that. And uh, it's just that there were so many. I mean, I would go out and speak, or and you know, a lot of people that were the mama mothers would come up and say, you know, I wish I was like you. I wish I had stayed in you know, playing basketball. I wish I had stayed playing softball. I just didn't have, nobody was encouraging me. And I just didn't have anybody to look up to. And, you know, the schools weren't doing it and all that. I mean, I grew up with that and I'm much older than they are. That, you know, that should have been changed years ago. And we're still working on it. We're still doing that. And I do see that has been a change. I mean, if you look at the past Olympic Games and you look at not, uh, this, how well the women did and all all the different sports and not just you know and now women of color and all of that it's just been great and I, that's what I feel the Women's Sports Foundation and Title IX was all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what changes would you would you still like to see in the status of of women athletes, especially women athletes of color? A more recognition that is possible and. Uh, Equal pay. I mean, I just think all of it, it, just the whole gamut, you know, for people to look at women and give them the same amount of credit that you would give any male athlete that you think. I mean, you look at Serena and Venus Williams and how well they play tennis and how long they have been fighting just to get not just them, but all the women in the tennis program fighting to get equal pay. And when you're looking at them, you know, you, now you have women just, I'm sorry, you have women are really doing a great job in all areas. I mean, I think that you have, um, you look at the swimming and in, in the past Olympics and you have Simone winning, you had a Simone in the uh, gymnastics, you had um, and Simpson and not the Simone though. But um, I can't think of her name. It's, it's but I can't think of her name. But it, the, okay, it's lost me. But anyway, <laughs> I just think that, you know, this is what we need, and this is what people need to do. Recognize, it. you know, you want to see good sports. Mm-hmm. That's what you want to see. And if it's women that are doing good sports, then that's how it should be. Women, mm-hmm. you know, if that's who you have to recognize. Mm-hmm. And, and moving back in time a bit, um, going to the Olympics in 64 in Tokyo, what, what was that experience like uh, traveling across the globe for the first time? Well, it was, I was 19 years old, so it was, I felt like a kid in a candy store. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like I I can just remember when we went into Tokyo. It was at nighttime, and just to be in an airplane and looking out at that city and all the lights. I mean, I was just in awe. I couldn't, you know, pull my head off the window <laughs> looking at it so much. And that, um, and it kind of reminded me a little of New York, but much bigger. Mm-hmm. And then uh, once getting there, I mean, I that was a period of my life. I think I grew a lot because. I had opportunity. I mean, we lived in the Olympic Village. It's not like it is today when athletes don't have to live in the Olympic Village. They can live in the, one of the grand hotels in the in the wherever they're competing. But to me, that was for me. It was wonderful in the sense that you go to the Olympic Village and there you you have your own dining hall where you get your American food, say if you're in and they have all these other different dining halls that you could go to. And that was my first time experience other foods other than just being you know, the what I consider American foods, to have Japanese food, to go have any kind of food, to go in the dining hall to see that. Also just to see people different cultures. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them in their different dress, the way they, for the country in which they come from. So that was so wonderful for me and so eye awakening. And to see that, you know, all these different people and also the people come, and how friendly they were. I mean, to me, that at the Tokyo Olympics was one of those Olympics that I will never forget and that will always be indebted in my heart and that uh, how warm the people of Japan were to us. And even just going, walk, going into the city of Tokyo and going to the Ganga and seeing so many people. <laughs> you know, being from Griffin, Georgia, when you, at the most when I was growing up, maybe 30,000 people and half of those lived in rural communities. So mm-hmm. you didn't really see that. And just to see all of that, it was just wonderful. And, uh, you know, it's an experience that I will always uh, have in my heart. Mm-hmm. And- you weren't expected to really compete for gold uh, in the 100 meters, yet you won anyway. How were how you able to overcome those, those odds in order to, to win the gold medal? Well, I have to give that credit to Mr. Temple because um, he um, always wanted his girls when he he always wanted to bring them along slowly. And he, he would, his thing was that you may be winning, you may be doing really well, but we're going to make you, you know, you're going to go along slowly. And the reason you're going to do this because you're running really well, but you also have to be educated, be able to sit and, and talk and talk to different people and talk with clarity and all those kinds of things. And he, so his whole thing was Tyus. We don't, that, he called all us by our last name. So mm-hmm. he was he was had always said to me when I made the Olympic team. Well, they take three people in each event, and uh, I was number three. And when I made the team, he was like, "Well, Tyus, you did it. You made the team, and you know, but we're not looking for great things from for you from you." <laughs> I said, "I said, okay." And my thing was, "Okay, Mr. Temple," <laughs> and uh, he says, "You know, I." 68 should be your year. You'd be good and strong. You'd be ready for that. And I said, okay, Mr. Temple. And we went to Tokyo. Mr. Temple was the coach of the women's team then, the Olympic team. He coached the 60 team and he coached the 64 team, which was unprecedented. So, But he went there and he, the whole time I was there, 
he just told me what tires well we're not expecting you know, we to do any of this we just you know this is for experience this will make you better in four years okay mr temple <laughs> then but it came down to the uh race every heat that leading up to the finals of the 100 meters i won each one of my heats and he would just say to me after each break, you look good there. That was good, good work, good work. And then at the, when it came down to the final of the 100 meters and I was out uh, warming up and he came and talked and he's giving us up, giving me my pep talk and his pep talk. Well, Tyus, you look good. You look pretty good. You know, if you keep up that running, you might win a medal. I said, okay, thank you, Mr. Temple. <laughs> and he went on to talk to Edith, and I was in, I just kept, and as when he left, I kept, I've been running good. I could win a medal. Then I started thinking, oh, I should be thinking like that. Because he always said to us, don't get the big head. So I'm like, oh, I don't want that. That has to leave my mind. <laughs> but I really felt I had run, I was running well, and I could, you know, I could win a gold if I felt. But of course, I just pushed that back in the way back of my mind because he was, everybody was thinking Edith, my, who's my best friend was going to uh, win that hundred meters. And she was going to go, and I have three gold medals like Wilma did in, in Rome. And, and I kind of upset the cart there <laughs> because I can just remember in that hundred meters, they had the three Americans. We were in lane six, seven, and eight. There was, I was in six and Edith was in seventh and um, Marilyn White was in eight. I can remember uh, once the gun went off and my running and I kept going. I was about at 80 meters and I kept thinking, where's Edith? Because she's always beat me and at 80 meters, she was always there and she wasn't there. And I kept going, where is she? And I, I kept remembering the other things too. And Mr. Temple will always say, you never need to look around because if you look around on the left or somebody was passing you on the right or vice versa, all you need to do is stay relaxed, lift knees, lean at the tape. All these things were going through my head. And then I was like, I can't, where is Eden? And then about 90 meters, I could hear her. I could even hear her breathing, I say. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and it was over. And then she, you know, after the race, she was like hugging me. You won. You won. I, I did. Because I, I really didn't know. Because I felt she was that close on me. <laughs> you know? And uh, I was, that was it. That hundred, it was like, oh boy, <laughs> I won. <laughs> it sounds like a lot more can go through your mind in 11 seconds than you would expect. <laughs> it is. I think so. Most people don't see it that way but I, I mean I was one of, I'm one of those people and that and I was doing my whole track career I always think over things in my head things as we go it's like even being on a victory stand after winning 100 meters in 64 I'm like you know just happy and then I start thinking oh god I got 68 I got 68 <laughs> <laughs> you know I got to do this all over again and and I should have been up there just totally enjoying but those things are running through my head running through your brain and those things a lot of people I think I don't know if other people that happen to other people but to me it's like in 11 seconds or so you can think about a lot of stuff but you can't let it really take take you over I mean those things were happening because I could have just let it go and look to the side and Edie would have passed me but I knew one thing I had to continue to run and stay strong and lean at the tape in which 
you know, that's what works. Mm-hmm. And, and in 1966, after your gold medal performance in 64, you went on a trip sponsored by the State Department to Africa. Uh, what, yeah. what was the purpose of that trip? And, and what was that experience like for you? Oh, it was absolutely a wonderful experience. It was Edith, my, uh, Mr. Temple, and myself. The, we went as Goodwill Ambassadors, and believe it or not, they sent us over there to promote women's track, <laughs> women's competing in sports, not so much track, women competing in sports. And that's why we were over there. Now, this was 1966. We were going to another country to encourage women to be involved in sports. Uh, and uh, we weren't really doing that. We weren't doing that here in America. So uh, that's why we went over. And it was a wonderful trip. We um, had, you know, we were supposed to be over there for two and a half to three months. And uh, that was also at the time when airplanes went on strike. So that we didn't, uh, in the middle of being there, we had to leave when they got a flight out for us. But it was a wonderful time. I got to learn a lot. Over there, that was another period in my life I felt was a great growth period that, you know, to see another country and to uh, just to be a part and to be over there and, you know, showing women uh, and encouraging women to be a part of sports and enjoy sports was even better. And, uh, you know, here it is. I have to go to another country to do that, and they don't do it here in the U.S. And in 1968, um, in the Olympics in Mexico City, the Olympic Project for Human Rights, kind of spearheaded by Harry Edwards, played, played a large role in, in shaping those games. Uh, could, could you talk about your involvement with the OPHR? Very little involvement at all. None, actually. It all started on, at San Jose State with uh, Tommy Smell, Carlos, and Harry Edwards. Uh, they chose not to really in, in, um, talk to the women. Well, I'm, I would say me, and I, I've talked to other women. They said they weren't talked to either. But, you know, they never said to us, this is what we're doing, this is what we're thinking. Uh, it was more like, uh, if um, this is what we do, are the women going to go along with it? Uh, that was not the case. Uh, so, you know, so our environment was very little. The way we found out information pretty much was reporters would call us and say, this is what uh, Tommy Smith or Carlos are saying, and uh, you guys were with that, and they say you guys are going to be with them and whatever. And it was like, you know, okay, we know nothing about it. And they weren't talking to us. They would talk to Mr. Temple about it. And he was like, they want to talk to us. And Mr. Temple would say to them, look, they're in school <laughs> and we're not going to go get them out of class just to talk about this. So if you would like to talk about it, you can come down to Tennessee State. Nobody showed up. So, <laughs> and, and the other part of it, you know, when we would go to our track meet and the reporters would ask us, uh, if we were going to boycott the Olympics, or what do you think about this? And we, the first thing was, we had to, you know, I kind of think what reporters felt was that what our goals were that, first of all, you can't boycott the Olympics if you have a major team. So if you want to talk to me after I make the team, <laughs> then we could talk about it. Uh, it was not that I didn't believe in what the whole project was about, human rights. It was just more that no one really talked to the women about it. No one said anything to us. I mean, even my whole goal 
was to get to the Olympics and that once you get to the Olympics, then I think you have a, a better platform or people will talk to you. Even going there, the reporters really didn't talk to us as women about how we felt about it. Only time and when they would talk to us, it would always be, well, this is what Carlos and Smith are saying, or this is what Harry is saying. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Not, oh, what are your thoughts or how you feel? Are you behind these kinds of things? Nobody ever really talked to us about that. Well, talk, I'm going to speak for me. No one really has talked to me about that. Uh, from day one, I believe in the human rights projects. And if you look at, I mean, I even wore dark shorts throughout my whole running at the Olympic Games in 68 in support of the project. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, But, of course, nobody talked about that. That was never, you know, it was, I think now they mention it, <laughs> and that's because I keep mentioning it. <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember um, after the, because uh, I won my, uh, I ran 100 before I ran the relay. So after my relay, I dedicated my medal to Tommy and Carlos because they had been banned from uh, the Olympic Village for what the victory for the Black Power salute on the uh, victory stand, and uh, I can remember going in the press and people they they asking, well, what did you think about this and what do you think about this and what do you think about it, Tommy and how is that going to affect you and all those things and I said, well, you know, I really believe in you know what they were standing for, and uh, that's when I told them I dedicate my medals to them, but of course. That was never printed. If it was, it was so small, nobody read it. <laughs> but, so they, you know, it's just that um, they just didn't give women that kind of press at all. Mm-hmm. And we're still fighting for it. So it's not like it's over. <laughs> You're still fighting for the equal rights and the press and all of that. Mm-hmm. You you write that you were actually in the spectator area when Tommy Smith and John Carlos received their medals and, and did the infamous Black Power salute. What what was your immediate reaction to, to seeing that happen? Oh, it was, well, being in the spectator area and when they came out to go to receive their medals, you could, I could see them. And uh, as they walked past, I was looking at them and I noticed, oh, damn, they don't have on any shoes. Why is they don't have a shoes on? <laughs> and then they um, walked, you know, they walked to the victory stand and uh, they gave them their medals. And when they start playing national anthem, they put their fists up. And I was like, oh my, that is wow. That's how I kept going. That is pretty powerful. Oh my gosh. And the, what really was to me was that the stadium got so quiet. It was so, so very, very quiet. And it was like, then you start hearing little talks and talk. And you had more rumbling. And then you had whistling. You had yelling. You had cheering. And then I was like thinking, oh, my gosh. God, they could get hurt if somebody up this, you know, somebody could really hurt them. And, oh, my gosh, I hope nothing really happens to them out there. And it was just so powerful and you know people were yelling people were screaming and booing and people were also cheering and i was just like i just think we all need to get out of here because i look like them and if somebody appears not you know we want to do something crazy to hurt them or hurt people that look like them then we need to get out of here so it was the whole powerful movement really 
just to me, like everybody else took everybody, so made everybody stop and stand, stare and go, wow, mm-hmm. that's powerful. Or I say they're crazy, whichever one they chose to do. But for me, it was like it was a very powerful thing. And I think it was something that was very much needed. And uh, I think you talk about 50 years later and people are still talking about it. And, and uh, people still are still having to do protests mm-hmm. about, for human rights. So, you know, it, that that's never going to end, it seems like. I would like to see it in, but I don't think it will in my lifetime anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, that appears to be the case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with, with, with seeing the, the negative reaction that Colin Kaepernick drew in, uh, in recent years, and Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf in the 90s, and it's, it's this mm-hmm. repeated pattern of uh, athletes protesting for better treatment and more human rights and a backlash from fans. Yeah, that's true. And I, I mean, there, you know, People, a lot of people, I mean, that's not the place to do it. That's not a place to do it. But the place is, it happens. And you, you know, the place, if you get, you want to make sure, you would like to have people to know what's going on, to understand what was going on. And uh, it's not just something that's not real. This is happening. And these are things you need to really take a look at. And, 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 and that, to me, I think, you know, Somewhere along the line, you have to say in yourself, these things do happen. How can I help? What can I do? Not so much criticize what the other person has taken a bigger step, a giant step. Everybody can't be on a victory stand and do what they did. You know, everybody can't be a Martin Luther King or, any, or Malcolm X. But you, we all have things in our heart and we feel things. We all can uh, do things to really make a change in not just your life, but life for everybody. Mm-hmm. And and talking about the lack of inclusion of of women's viewpoints in, in the OPHR, what what would you have liked to to say to them if they had consulted you? And and how do you think women's inclusion may have may have changed what what happened in '68? Yeah, I don't know what I would like would have said to them, but I think if women were involved, uh, you would have had. I just. It would have given it a different flavor, so to speak. <laughs> it would have, uh, a lot of times, you know, different people from uh, different eras, different growing up. We all grew up. I mean, I was grew up in the South. They grew. They grew up here in California and New York and all those places. So you had a different view about it, and it would just be that you are including when everybody's included, you know, and when you have. You're better in numbers. Let me put it that way. <laughs> you know, when you want to do it, make a change. You're better with numbers, and no one wants to be left out. And we all have. I think we all have. You know, we talk about my people winning gold medals and all that. I feel we all have gold medals in us, and we all can uh, use our gold medals. And you know, whether it's for protest or whatever you want to use it for, for humankind. I think we can do that, and we and then doing that, we have to look at people and say, and be honest. This this is not right. These things are not right. And I just think, well, what if they just had women? It, we I can't say things would have been different because it's easy to say that now because mm-hmm. you can look. It's hindsight, you know. And I just like to stay focused on. We should have been there. We were not there, but our voices we. Voices can be heard, and it, you know it's not and never too late. Not when it comes to human rights. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's always a constant struggle that, that's as important as any. Yes, it's true. Yeah. Well, Wyoming, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to, to speak with me today. I, I really enjoyed the book, and I, it's truly an honor to have you with me. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Pros and Pros podcast. Stay tuned for many more exciting guests in the near future. In the interim, please subscribe and leave a positive review if you've enjoyed the show. You can also follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Pros and Pros. I'm Michael Wimmer. Happy reading, everyone.